0: Steinberg and David
1: you know, a lot of you listeners have been responsible for getting us some of the very best guests here at the PowerCast. A case in point is the gentleman we're going to introduce in just a few moments. His name is Klaus Dona. He's a world traveler and he's collected some very, very unusual artifacts. What kind of artifacts? Well, they may indicate the presence of advanced civilizations in ancient times. And you're going to want to listen to that. In the second part of the show, we go from Austria where Klaus Dona lives all the way to Brazil. And there we're going to talk with A.J. Gavard, and I'm sorry if I'm mangling his name, but A.J. is the editor of the Brazilian UFO magazine. He's a full-time UFO researcher. And lots of strange events, lots of strange events, happen all over South America. As you know, my friend and co-host David Biedny saw a UFO with his family in Venezuela back in the 1970s as he mentioned in an earlier episode, but that's only the beginning. Lots more fascinating stuff is coming, so you'll want to hear from that in the second half of the show. And a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to get in touch with us here at The Powercast, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. When you visit thepowercast.com, you'll see our newly updated message boards where you can participate. And also, you can download all the episodes. And a reminder, unlike some of those other radio shows, and we're not criticizing anyone specifically, but a lot of those other radio shows charge you for every episode that you download from them. We do not charge, it's free. So that's all coming up on the PowerCast. Kansas anymore. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C Crane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band, they work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site. TheParacast.com, that's theParacast.com right now. Click on the C Crane sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for one sixty-four ninety-five, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C Crane catalog. Place your order today.
2: You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: So, Klaus, how did you get involved in collecting, I guess we call them anomalous objects?
3: That was several years ago. I read several books from uh, Robert Charroux, a French guy, and Peter Colosimo, an Italian guy. Uh, They wrote a lot about unexplained. Things, Pieces They Found, and Places They Found, and uh, many other books, and uh, on my trips uh, mainly to Far East to Japan because my main job is making culture exhibitions like Rubens' Exhibitions or uh, the History of the House of Habsburg. Uh, and I thought, uh, I didn't believe that those things really exist, and I thought it might be a good idea trying to get uh, many of those pieces into one exhibition so that scientists could easily find out uh, if those things are real or frauds. And that was the start of the whole story. And I was very skeptic. I didn't believe all those things. And uh, I really had to change in the last few years.
1: You're in the PowerCast. Klaus Stona joins us, and he has gone around the world collecting anomalous objects. And I guess we might as well start with what was the first thing that you recovered or looked at that looked to you something that you couldn't explain?
3: The first Thing. We researched only pieces which are in museums worldwide, uh, which are very strange and so on. And uh, a friend of mine, a director of a museum, wrote letters to all those uh, museums all over the world and asked if, uh, as director, to Director, he asked for lending uh, such pieces, and uh, we asked altogether for 368 pieces. And how many do you think we got? How many? One.
4: Oh, my God. And Just
3: all the can. others and yeah and we passed about one and a half year and we only had back one and a half year until the opening of the planned exhibition we rented already the space and everything and we had exactly one piece so everybody told me that's impossible to do such an exhibition but uh, I said nothing is impossible as long as you don't try it and then we researched by ourselves we made several trips to South America to Central America to North America also to Asia, and uh, finally, in one and a half year, we got 470 pieces into our exhibition.
4: Oh, boy. Were these pieces loaned
3: to you? They weren't given to you. I imagine they just loaned them to you for the exhibition. Of course. And it was yeah. not that easy to get many of those pieces because uh, private collectors, as you can imagine, they take very, very care of their pieces and uh, on the other hand many of those collections are not uh, recognized by the official scientists so they were very skeptic what we tried to do if we tried to to do some jokes on them or whatever and but finally it was a real good and great success and uh, when we brought the pieces to vienna it was not that easy at all to get some scientists for for checking those pieces but finally we got some of them and all the pieces we checked i was also very much surprised there was not one fraud. there were only originals but uh, many of the pieces or let's say most of the pieces even the scientists could not explain how did they made it uh, where they come from which civilization and other things
4: I imagine that radiocarbon dating was a primary scientific method used to date these objects what other methods were used to determine the dates of the origins of these objects and and Uh, their actual locations of origin
3: Um, Many of the pieces are made out of stone. This is very strange, but uh, now I know uh, that it's not that strange, because uh, whenever, uh, for example, a global catastrophe will happen, everything will disappear, iron, metal, wood, everything. But stone, only stone will be forever and it will not change so many of those things are made out of stone and as you know you cannot date a stone hmm that's why I'm wondering about the dating methods yeah some uh, and as, as it's, it takes a long time also to do several researches, that means we didn't have that much time. So, uh, for example, Crystal skies we got about uh, six into our first exhibition, and the owner is uh, a lady living in Holland, and she was before living in the United States, and she collected uh, six skies precious stone and uh, Crystal skies and uh, the Hewlett-Packard institution did a check on several crystal skulls and they asked also Mrs. Van Dieten if she would lend uh, one or two of the crystal skulls for the research and she refused. Uh, that's why in the crystal world her skulls were announced as uh, new made because she was not willing to give them for this research. Finally when we got the skulls to Vienna, one of my friends is worldwide the expert on stonework and precious stonework and he checked those skulls and uh, he said definitely all those six skulls were made by hand, that means it would have taken a long long time and uh, they are real original and old but even crystal you cannot date because the crystal itself is millions of years old.
1: Well, the crystal skull tends to be kind of a a strange story in and of itself. So these crystal skulls, has it been determined what they truly represent?
3: No, nobody knows really, but uh, many of the elders and uh, other people, they say, that they store some informations and uh, it could be, it could not be but I don't know it exactly and I didn't know it but I had a very, very strange experience uh, two years ago in November it was exactly November 11th 2004 when we had the exhibition in Switzerland uh, a Russian shaman lady came with her interpreter and she asked me if it might be possible to go into the exhibition after closing and we closed at 9 p.m. and shaman it sounded very interesting for me Uh, she comes from Siberia and uh, I accepted and uh, in the evening she came again with the interpreter and of course we have some explanations with each of the pieces and to several pieces I knew more than we wrote on on the informations and this lady told me things that I was really surprised, very much surprised uh, and then she told me that she tries to get some informations from the skulls and through her interpreter one of the skull information was, in a few days a big wave will kill hundreds of thousands of people and that was 11th of November. And on twenty sixth of November, the big tsunami in Asia happened.
4: So the skull wasn't giving information, it was being clairvoyant.
3: Yes, but also from the past, uh, we received several informations. Like what? (laughs) Nobody would believe it anyway, so... I keep it for myself.
0: Let me
1: ask you: How does the skull communicating this sort of information? Is somebody merging or mind melding with the skull? How is this happening?
3: Uh, look, this is the big question which I cannot answer. There are so many things which I cannot a- answer this question. I mean, there are people they know much more than me concerning exactly these questions.
4: Now, about the origin of these skulls, Klaus. Um, I think our listeners who probably know about these skulls yeah. wonder why it is that there is an assumption that they would have been impossible to make. I suppose if you had one person who was a craftsman who spent 10 or 15 years making one of these Would that be an unbelievable thing? Isn't that in the realm of possibility, even assuming they were made a long time? uh,
3: I think it would have uh, taken even more time than 10 or 15 years.
4: Explain to us why.
3: Because uh, as the expert checked, one uh, skull, he didn't know anything about the story where it was found, etc. And this skull, as Mrs. Van Dieten told me, was found in Guatemala under the earth when a farmer was working on his farm, Mm -hmm. and uh, he checked this guy very, very careful about uh, at least two hours. And after two hours, he told me, uh, I think, he always says, I think, because that doesn't mean uh, that he doesn't know it, but he doesn't say they did. He says, uh, I think. They made the skull with a sharp, a very fine and strong instrument. They hit the raw form out of the crystal skull. and then they used most probably, he said, uh, quartz sand to make the form exactly. And that he said, would have taken a long, long time. And then they polished the skull and he thinks they used leather but also this would have taken a long long time and then he said this guy must have been a long time under earth because there is some corrosion on this guy uh, mm-hmm. where he can say that this guy is at least older than 500 years so that means this guy is definitely an original mayan crystal sky
5: the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to reach us, send your messages to news at the paracast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget that we have active message boards at thepowercast.com where you can check out. This week we're talking to Klaus Stoner. He's talking to us from Austria and he has gone around the world to collect anomalous objects and one of those anomalous objects is of course crystal skull. So let's continue with that vein here. Now today, if an artisan today tried to build a crystal skull, is there any sense on your part Klaus how long it would take them to do it?
3: No, today with uh with machinery, it's uh, quite easy. Not easy, I would not say easy, but it doesn't take that long time. And uh, especially in Germany, there is uh, Ida Oberstein. It's a small town and it's very famous for their specialists on working on uh, several crystals and precious stones. And believe me, they make really fantastic object artifacts out of uh, big uh, crystals and big uh, precious stones it wouldn't take that long time and it wouldn't be that difficult like in the past
4: I know that you said before that there was some information about the past that these skulls revealed to the psychic and I know that you said you wanted to keep this for yourself but yeah I, I can't let you go that easily <laughs> from that can you get when you say these things are not but you know that it's unbelievable yeah. our audience has heard a lot of unbelievable things on the show
3: so, uh, so. for example there yeah. was one skull from China missus fun didn't know exactly from where this guy uh, is and Nina that's the name of the Russian shaman uh, she told her that this guy it's very very old at least over 2000 years and it was kept very close to the Shaolin, I think you say Shaolin in English, say mm-hmm. Shaolin Monastery in China, and it was belonged to a very great monk. So, one information, one of the informations.
4: That doesn't sound completely outrageous. What I do find interesting, though, is that these crystal skulls have been found in multiple places on the earth. Is that correct?
3: Yes, we had uh, skulls from uh, Russia, from Mongolia, from China, from Peru, from Guatemala, from north-south uh, Italy. This is also very interesting because uh, the story said that uh, this skull had something to do with uh, France, Franciscus from Assisi and uh, also Nina said that that had to do something with a monk who who loved very much animals Uh, so that means it was Franciscus
1: Hmm. now the thing I'm curious about
3: here how is that possible?
1: I'm curious about this is that do they all look essentially the same, or are there design no, differences no, are, from
3: place all, to place? They all look a little bit different.
1: Okay, mm. but that, does it seem then that they're being influenced, the artisans, by the same source material, or or what?
3: Uh, no, also the material is different. Uh, there is lapis lazuli, there is mountain crystal, there is uh, quartz crystal, different materials. Okay, And okay. we researched further on on skies, and I know now about 28 skies. But there is another story that there are only 13 on Earth's uh, originals, very old skies. But whoever knows, maybe we find them one day.
1: Now that they are finding all this water on Mars, maybe we'll find them on Mars.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yes, it gets to be but I don't think that, that that I would be able to go there.
4: No, I think it would be a long trip, and I was saying to Gene, if they have water, this is fine, but if they have no chocolate, they couldn't get me to go there.
3: I agree completely with you.
4: <laughs> we have to have some Martian chocolate. You know, it's going to be
1: just... You know, you'll have an emotional epiphany.
3: But do you know that in Vienna we have that delicious chocolate? You should come over.
4: Oh, this is, you know, this is another show I want to do on European chocolate because that uh, the best chocolate I've ever had is from Europe. Klaus, coming back to um, the objects, I'm curious to know what are the oldest objects that you looked at in assembling this exhibit?
3: That's the question which I cannot answer because I think there are pieces very, very old. For example, there is one stone, uh, there is a completely world map on the stone, including three continents which do not exist anymore. Uh, One is exactly in the Atlantic Ocean and approximately at the, the area where Casey was saying that uh, Atlantis, uh, the, co- the lost continent, was there. Another one is from the northeast island of Japan, which belongs now to Russia, until uh, far down to after Taiwan, a long continent. And the very interesting thing is that uh, Professor Kimura, Masaki Kimura, the pro- Japanese professor who is researching the sunken monuments in uh, Okinawa Islands. He found several of them already. One is very famous. It's called Iseki in Yonaguni Island. There's 25 meters uh, under the sea level, a very huge, big stone, kind of stone building. And many years archaeologists said that this was done by the nature, but he could already prove that this was done by man. So that means, and he wrote the book, and he explained, uh, his research tells him that there must have been a long continent exactly from the northeast island until far down after Taiwan. So very strange that on this stone map, the continent is exactly like he was explaining in his book. Uh, And uh, the third one is in the area where the Fiji Islands are. And that could be the many times called Lost Continent Lemuria. But I think, so the question now, how old old must this stone stone map be? Mm,
1: Fate magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com dot f a t e m a g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits you're
5: in the paracast with gene steinberg and david Biedney. you never know what's going to happen next
1: This is yeah. the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you want to reach us, send your messages to news at com. Visit our website at thepowercast.com where you can participate in our message boards. And we have a clear navigation bar, and you click on the words discussion forums. It takes you right there. We had some listeners who said they had a problem reaching the forums. We're talking to Klaus Stona, who has gone around the world collecting, I guess we call them anomalous or out of place objects for exhibits. Mm -hmm. And we're talking now about potential lost continents. And now we're getting into some really interesting stuff. Klaus, where did you say
4: the stone map came from?
3: from? It was found in Ecuador with many other artifacts which are very interesting. For example, one pyramid. It's about 27 centimeters height, and uh, it looks exactly like uh, you have the pyramid on your one U.S. dollar note. It has 13 steps and the eye, and the strange thing is that if you put this pyramid on the black light, the eye is very, very strong shining and uh, that was the place also where this stone uh, world map was found underground while gold digging in south america
4: when you say this eye shines it's not made from the same material as the pyramid uh
3: it's an inlay and this inlay is also stone and the natural color is gray and if you put black light on it, it uh, shines really like, like an eye but not like a human eye. Very strong.
4: Is there any other way to recreate that effect using a certain type of stone material with black light?
3: I don't know but I don't think that mm-hmm. it's that easy. And another strange thing is that on the bottom of this pyramid you have in gold inlays the Orion constellation and an unknown writing and there is one there was uh, Unfortunately, he passed away about two years ago. One gentleman in Germany, he spoke and wrote about 40 languages. And I asked him if he could help me for explanation of this writing, and uh, he did it already on other stones. They were found in Ecuador, in Colombia, in France, and in United States, in Illinois. And it was the same writing, he said. He called this writing pre-Sanskrit because he said it's much older than Sanskrit. And the translation of this writing on the bottom of the pyramid was saying the son of the creator comes. Wow. It's
1: almost like the legends of Christ, right?
3: Could be. And there are several other artifacts. And we are just researching now these things which have to do something with, you say, Yes, Jesus Christ, because there's also one stone, and in this stone the color changes from brown to black, and the black color shows a face uh, with closed eyes and a long beard and long hair. And Mm -hmm. if I show this photograph to 100 persons, 99 tell me immediately it looks like the Shroud of Turin. And on this world map, there are two inlays. One is exactly there where Jerusalem is, and there is a white line going straight to the place where the pieces were found in South America, and there is another inlay. Very strange.
4: This is actually on the map. So the presumption here is whoever made this map was aware of Europe, was aware of the Middle East, was aware of the location of Jerusalem, and connected Jerusalem and that area in Ecuador with a with a line? Yes. Gene, this is a stranger episode than I thought it would be. <laughs> this, how old is this particular artifact?
3: The stone must be older than ten to 12,000 years because Professor Kimura's uh, research said that uh, this sunken building in Yonaguni must have been sunken around uh, eleven to 12,000 years ago, and that's, again, uh, a connection to the big flood, which you find in any history all over the world.
4: Hmm. Now, th- this brings up an interesting question, Klaus. Um, yeah. If, if we look at a timeline of civilization, I've been, I've been researching this a little bit, and it, it there's a very interesting gap between when Neanderthals and Homo sapiens seem to have coexisted, and then from then to when we see the first established civilizations, you know, the Sumerian civilization and old civilizations in China, there is maybe an 80,000, 90,000-year gap when we don't seem to know much about Anything in terms of human civilization in terms of any kind of historical record there there really is nothing it's interesting when you say that uh, these artifacts that you're finding some of them appear to be twelve thousand years old and much older a, and much older this yeah. it, it confirms to me that there is a large amount of human history that is completely unknown to us
3: right and it's Especially in our days, it's getting more and more interesting, but not for the official scientists because uh, they, they do never accept that there existed civilization 10, 20, 30,000 years ago. That's a real problem that it's not easy to find uh, scientists researching these things because uh, you in the United States, you have a very, very good, great example, uh, Mrs. Virginia Steen McIntyre. She was a great scientist and she lost her job because she found out in the 60s that she found in Mexico uh, that there lived a civilization uh, humans, there lived. Humans, human population, about 250 to 400 thousand years ago, and uh, she lost her job because of publishing this.
1: Now, so, because that's... they felt that she didn't back up her claims, or just the nature, the sensational nature of the claim.
3: No, because uh, as you know, uh, until a few years ago, the United States history said that the first humans. Passed over the, the, um, Bering Street in the last ice age. Hmm. The first human came to, to America. And that's completely wrong, I think. And we have a prover that it's wrong.
5: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to
1: happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at com. If you go to theparacast.com, you can download past episodes of the show. Click on the discussion forums link in our little navigation bar on top, and you can get to the discussion forums that are very wild and woolly. I said those words again. We're talking to Klaus Stona, who has some sensational information to offer about Artifacts that are anomalous and also about evidence of past civilizations. And it's getting to be more and more fascinating all the time. And let's continue with this vein. David, you've been reading lots about this subject, so I know that you have many
4: thousands of questions to offer. Well, well, Klaus had just mentioned that there's proof that uh, human civilizations were existing this many years ago, certainly before conventionally accepted historical uh, knowledge Klaus, can you tell our audience a little bit about why you think this is the case?
3: For example, how can you explain that in uh, West Africa is a mountain, a big uh, granite uh, rock mountain, and in this mountain you have a a lady from the top of her head until the middle of her body completely uh, worked in this mountain, and can you imagine that this statue in the mountain is about 150 meters in height. Who could that do? Mm. How could they do it? And this lady does not look in any case like African. It looks more like South American or Asian. So who would have done this statue into a rock mountain in West Africa?
4: Now, there are a lot of examples that you found of this kind of a situation where there are depictions of people in South America. The um, Valdivia, uh, the ceramics from Valdivia are very interesting. I was looking at this on on the website, where these uh, you say these look a lot like certain types of ceramics from Japan.
3: Uh, Yes, exactly. This is... uh In Japan, it's called the Chomon culture, and in uh, Ecuador, it's called Valdivia. It's until now the oldest ceramic found in South America, but we found some pieces, and they are more than 20,000 years old, not pieces, uh, parts of uh, ceramics.
4: What is the theory, then, that there was commerce or there was some type of political interaction between...
3: No, there must, have been, there must have been a contact be, be between Japan and South America at least 6,000 years uh, before our time, because the pieces are so similar that the, if you put two pots from the same culture, from German and Ecuador, from the Valdivia, together, they look so perfectly the same that it's very hard to say which comes from where. But even there is another approval that there must have been a contact because in the year 2000 uh, in Chile were found about uh, 76 mummies in the Atacama Desert, very good uh, condition and uh, they did dna analysis the mummies are definitely between 7 and 9000 years old and mm-hmm. the dna they found in these mummies are exactly like the original japanese uh, people the ainu living in hokkaido still now it's exactly the same dna so how could that be possible without any contact between those two continents.
4: I'm looking right now at a picture on your website of um, two ceramic statues specifically um, uh, uh, and I'm wondering, it's not labeled here but um, there there are two of these heads right next to one another. Are you saying that one of these is from Ecuador and the other is from Japan?
3: Uh, No. This is all one collection they were found. I think you talk about pieces uh, from Ecuador. They were found uh, from uh, Father Boris. He was a padre in uh, the Catholic University in Quito, and he found in an underground tunnel system uh, many, many pieces uh, of ceramic, and all those pieces are human heads. Uh, not very big, but uh, you can find in this collection all kind of different humans from all over the world. Hmm. In the same collection of artifacts in Ecuador. Yes, and they are at least over 2,000 years old. So who could know 2,000 years ago yeah. how people are looking all over the world? For example, from North America, there is an Iroquois Indian, exactly like we know from pictures from the old days. And you find some Asians, Chinese, uh, African Who could have done those pieces?
1: This creates the entire picture of a world and of past civilizations that we know very little about. Any indication here how advanced these ancient civilizations might have been?
3: No idea. No idea. But I think in the the Indian oldest writing, You can get the translation, and it's written about the Bimanas, the flying objects.
1: Okay, I figured we're getting to this. Okay, so let's talk about that, flying objects. Now, obviously, this takes us to ancient astronauts. So is it possible that early man, thousands of years ago, met up with ancient, advanced beings from somewhere else?
3: Could be. It could be. But other question, couldn't it be possible that uh, human civilization was already that advanced uh, that they could even make uh, flying objects? That's okay. the question.
1: I think as a corollary, we wonder if our civilization <laughs> was destroyed, say, in the next 50 years, five or 10,000 years from now, what would be left of it? And if a new civilization arose, what would they think? Would they think they were the most advanced civilization, or would they know or have evidence that we existed at all? Very interesting Uh, question. You
3: know what they mostly would find? Plastic. Because other material would, would disappear. What about plastic? Disappears. Hmm.
4: I hope you're right. <laughs> I, I sometimes wonder about all the years. Uh, I would hope that it de- it, de- it decomposes. You know. uh,
1: maybe yeah. Maybe then we should just give it all up and let the next civilization take over, and maybe they'll do better than we did. But then again, the other question would be, what happened to these ancient civilizations? Did they reach a Pinnacle of success? Did they undergo the same problems we have here, and somehow destroy themselves? Was it some kind of outside cataclysm that raises so many questions? So many questions. Well,
4: in some cases, like if you go to Easter Island, what right. appears to have happened is that the the native people there essentially deforested the whole the whole island to build the statues and essentially they destroyed their own natural resources, much like we're doing today. Mm. So basically we haven't learned
1: from history. We're just doing the same thing over and over again. Every 5 or 10,000 years we develop a civilization, we make the same mistakes, we mess it all up, and then we come back again and we're ready to repeat those mistakes. That almost sounds tragic. Hopefully
3: we come back again.
1: Yes, hopefully. Hopefully there's a planet left to come back to. (laughs)
2: You are about to enter another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound but of mind, a journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, the Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened. At the signpost up ahead, your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. We're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg
5: and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: You're in the powercast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you want to get in touch with us, write us news at the Click on the discussion forums link on the powercast.com website and there you can participate in our discussions. Just have to join, give yourself a username and get involved where you can download past episodes of the show. Klaus Stona joins us from his Place in Austria. He has traveled around the world accumulating anomalous objects representing evidence of possibly advanced civilizations. Klaus, you have a website that you've set up. Maybe before we proceed with further questions, you can tell us about that, what you have there, and how people can find out more.
3: Uh, yes, we have a website, but of course, we do not put too many things on it because. The more you see, the less you understand, and uh, you find it under www.unsolved mysteries.info info.
1: Okay. www.unsolved
4: hyphen mysteries.info. David, well. I'm right now looking at um, a fascinating object on the website, uh, Klaus, the disc of Phaistos, and I want to make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly.
3: Yes, this photo is a replica because we were not able to get the original disc from the museum in Grecia. Uh, It's a replica, but a perfect one, and it's one of the very few replicas, for example, also the gold planes, we call it gold planes, the little uh, gold pieces from the gold museum in Bogota, we also could not get, but we got some uh, one-to-one original replicas. And that's another question, because those pieces are mentioned uh, officially as insects or other things. But uh, two Germans did uh, models in a much bigger scale exactly on the original, and uh, they could fly those objects with loopings and perfect flying.
4: Really? So they were aerodynamically sound? Yes. Huh. Yeah, well, one caught
1: my eye here, something called Mythology in Stone. This is on Chapter 01 at your website. And it shows what... I suppose you could call an astronaut wearing a helmet, very much like our astronauts do today or our advanced pilots. And how old is this stone object?
3: Uh, it's not stone. Uh, this is ceramic. Okay. And it's also from uh, Ecuador, and and it's about 2,500 years old.
4: Oh, boy. I'd like to come back to the disk of Feistos for a moment, yeah. uh, okay. Klaus, because this is a disk that has... A very unusual iconographic language on it that looks quite frankly like nothing I have ever seen it doesn't look like Egyptian hieroglyphics it's completely different some parts of it look fairly uh, obvious you know there are some what appear to be a, a Roman soldiers helmet um, on certain parts but there are other things on this that are just odd uh, what do we know about this object what is its history
3: Several experts are trying to explain these writings, but uh, until now, I think there is one German very advanced, uh, and uh, I am waiting for his report of the ex- explanation. But uh, what he said, uh, some part looks also like the the uh, Indus Valley writings uh, from India now Pakistan from the Indus Valley. And some of the the uh, symbols are also looking a little bit similar with the Easter Island writings hmm. very strange but there's another thing the the writing I told you before uh, which is on the bottom of the pyramid the pyramid right we found the same writings on stones in Ecuador in Colombia in Illinois in France in south italy in malta in turkmenistan and in australia and it's always the same writing Whew. does not exist so if you go back to the bible that is written until the building of the tower of Babel, there was only one language on earth couldn't that be true hmm. that this might, might have been a written version of own, the one language all over the world yeah which is a writing which uh, only this man in German could translate, and he wrote a book about the writings, and he translated some of the stones from Ecuador, from Colombia, from Illinois, and from uh, Glozell. He translated their writings and the strange thing that on those stones several stones were writing about a big catastrophe big disaster destroyment and other things
4: could you mention the name of that uh, of that fellow and the book he wrote again once more for our listeners please the man who
3: made the translation yes kurt schildmann kurt schildmann he passed away about uh, two years ago, uh, in the age of 94 years. But until his death, he was very clear in his head. Fantastic man.
4: And what was the name of the book that he wrote about the language? Uh,
3: he didn't publish many. He did it in his own, uh, on his own, and fortunately, I have one, but it's in the office now. The title, I think. Okay, that's okay. Any minute. But uh, I do not think that it's possible to buy it because. He published not that many, and they were sold out completely, mm. rapidly.
4: Has anybody else followed in his footsteps in learning how to interpret this language?
3: There's another man, Dr. Zeitelmeier. He is living in Bavaria. Uh, he was uh, working many times with uh, Professor Schildmann.
4: Wow. Okay. So someone has picked up the work. Because to, I, I look at this, again, this of um, Feistos, I look at this, and actually, what my eye sees in looking at this, it's almost as if there are two separate stories being told here. David, could you tell this, our listeners exactly where they could see this picture? Well, this is, um, if you go to uh, Unsolved, you know, the, the website, uh, unsolvedmysteries.net is actually what I'm looking at. Um, in the chapter pages, it is in, let me just make sure I got this right, it is in Chapter 5. Okay. Um the disc of Feistos and other okay, writings so that's, this is some little artifact here well,
1: how
3: big it is, is it the disc of Feistos, like like a plate like like a dish mm-hmm.
4: so it's a maybe maybe a foot across in looking at it Klaus, there is something as i was saying it's almost as if there this disc is depicting Two separate timelines, two separate stories, the way it's organized. But what's most interesting to me looking at this is that at the upper left part, where the stories almost seem to begin, there is a very small little image that almost looks like some kind of a spaceship it's just very strange I don't know if it's just the way my eye is seeing it but um, there are some lines that come down and then there's what looks like a spaceship with struts sitting upwards sitting upright
3: it's very yeah. many, odd many 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 photos uh, from old artifacts with things on it which you might think like a saucer flying saucer or spa- spaceship or whatever there are many pieces.
4: Is this because our brain wants us to think that's what we are seeing? Uh, <laughs> I
3: wonder about this. Or, like I said before, couldn't it, couldn't it be possible that humans were much, much more advanced than we know until today?
2: Hmm.
5: This is the podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bieting. You never know
1: what's going to happen next. You're in the paracast with yeah. Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. If you want to get in touch with us. Send your messages to news at com. That's news at powercast.com. You visit the site. You can participate in our message boards, and you can download past episodes of the show from way back in the very beginning. And an important point here, we don't charge for the downloads. They're always free, and we make them available in MP3 formats, so you don't need to have some kind of weird computer to listen to them, and you don't need to pay a subscription. We're talking to Klaus Stona. He is a person who is a world traveler collecting anomalous artifacts and information from around the world. David, I am very curious about what you're going to say next.
4: Well, one of the first things as a teenager when I became interested in the paranormal, one of the very first things that uh, I came across were the Eric Von Donekin writings. And what I found absolutely fascinating were the lines at NASCA. Uh I had never seen anything like that. And uh, they were very compelling to me. I did wonder at the time, it, there was this idea that these could only be seen from up above. And how could that be possible? And it, it always occurred to me that uh, perhaps there was balloon technology that has long since been you know, forgotten. Uh, when we think about flight, we think about airplanes. But certainly balloons existed long before airplanes did. And perhaps some form of a balloon was what was actually used in order to view these designs from the sky. I have a problem believing that these lines were put there, as it has been uh, uh, theorized, to guide incoming spaceships to where to land. I, I don't know that I believe that a spaceship would need a landing pattern or a runway, but certainly in terms of being able to see these things from the sky... I'm wondering, I know it's not in your, your collection of objects, uh, Klaus, but what what are your thoughts about the Nazca lines?
3: Uh, I was flying two times over the lines, and Very strange. I just can say very strange. And there are, I think, approximately 90 scientific explanations why they did those lines. So there are many, many explanations. But it's very hard to say, is the right one included or are all the explanations wrong? Uh, The strange thing is that those lines you can even see from satellite.
4: You know, I was actually using Google Earth... The software to look, and and, and I was looking for them, and I wasn't able to find them. I spent about an hour trying to find them. I suppose if I spent a little more time, I'd be able to determine where they are. What a lot of people do not realize is that these things are in essentially a very high desert that has very little wind, which is apparently why they've been able to survive for so long.
3: Yeah, but uh, close to the Nazca Lines, there is the little town... Ica, or you would say Ica, and there is also a very strange collection, thousands of stones with end carvings. The owner, Dr. Cabrera, he passed away about four years ago. But uh, in 1999, uh, in 1999, 2000, 2001. Uh, We interviewed him, and we filmed and photographed all those pieces, and they are very strange. You find there dinosaurs, you find brain operations, heart transplantations, and other things. Dinosaurs? Very strange. Did you say dinosaurs? Human and dinosaurs also, yes.
4: Really? In these carvings, on these stones? Yes. What's the explanation for that? That seems incredibly
3: odd. (laughs) What explanation?
4: Yeah. <laughs> we want to understand this. How I, I mean, everything we know about the history of the planet would strongly contradict that humans and dinosaurs coexisted.
3: Oh, you have a very good example in uh, Texas, Palaxi River. They found dinosaurs' steps parallel with uh, human steps.
4: Hmm. Okay.
3: Glen Rose, Palaxi River. I was there.
4: Well, what's the scientific theory behind this? I mean, these do not seem... Uh, this is certainly not part of mainstream science in any way.
3: Uh, it is not. Uh, there's another good example, for example, in, in uh, Mexico, a Cambero uh, They found in the 30s, 1930s, 1940s, uh, over 30,000 ceramic pieces, and many of them are exactly showing dinosaurs and... Uh, Researches, age datings, uh, gave an age between 2,000 and 4,500 years. So how those people could know how dinosaurs are looking like?
4: Hmm. Now, is it a situation where perhaps they were creating depictions of mythical creatures not knowing that these things would actually appear to be dinosaurs? I'm just wondering but if that's a possibility. They
3: look so exactly that you would be astonished. Some of them, you easily could uh, say which di- dinosaur it is. Hmm. Is it possible to, to build up such a fantasy? That's well, the same that's story th- with th- the fantasy is concerning by the scientists, the pyramids, that uh, maybe in different uh, time, people had the same idea because pyramids you can find all over the world. All yes. over the world. Yes, Even yes. in these days, in Bosnia, Former Yugoslavia, they found out that two mountains, they thought mountains, but they, these are two huge big pyramids
1: i'll tell you we only have about three minutes left here and, and even it's really the- hard to come to conclusions about so many <laughs> mysteries except i guess the overall one being that there could very well have been more advanced civilizations thousands of years ago that a lot of the remnants were lost and all we have are these strange artifacts that you pick up from time to time so unfortunate
3: It would be great if scientists would keep more eyes on those things. But it's very difficult to talk with a specialist for Egypt about South America and vice versa. It's very difficult. They they are specialists in this field, and they do not look much on the other side. But there are Mm -hmm. so many things. If you compare them, you find out many things.
4: Klaus, I'm curious. Uh, You had this exhibit. (laughs) Klaus, you had put together this exhibit and I'm wondering if there's a book that exists with high quality photos I know that I'd like to have that book did you guys make a book from this
3: uh... we made a catalog out of it in Vienna but only in German language and I think soon we will uh, make it in English with many many more artifacts because in the catalog you have over 450 color photos of objects we presented in Vienna but in the last five years I found many many other things
4: well I would love to be able to have a book of this so I would uh, I would plead with you <laughs> to publish this I, I is, is there oh, that would be lovely I would love that is there a, a, a permanent exhibition of any sort in in Austria
3: no 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 this was only one time in Vienna oh. thousand one and then we had it in Switzerland and I'm just under negotiation to bring this exhibition next year in summertime to South Korea to Seoul, mm,
4: even even further away,
1: <laughs> and you're not coming <laughs> to the United States,
3: huh? The oh. problem is that such a project is not at all very very uh, cheap, as you can imagine. Sure. Yeah. Uh, of course, if we find a sponsor or organization who would like to have this exhibition in America, I would love to bring all the pieces over there.
1: I'll tell you what, this is just the beginning of a discovery for knowledge. And it's, as I said, so sad that there's so much out there that we do not understand so much, a wealth of knowledge that we have apparently lost through the ages. We've been talking to Klaus Stona. He's assembled exhibits of anomalous objects, showing things about our history that we didn't understand or believe in. Check his site, www.unsolved-mysteries.info.
4: Klaus, thank you so much for
1: this Hi, session the session on the podcast.
3: Thank you very much. sorry that my English is not that perfect.
4: It's no, your great. English was excellent. It was excellent. Thank you so much,
3: Klaus. This was fascinating. Thank you very much, and hope to hear you soon again.
1: Coming up next on this week's Powercast, we're going to hear from AJ Gaverd, Brazilian UFO researcher, who is going to talk about a frightening crash retrieval episode. And by the way, if you want to get in touch with us here at the Powercast, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. That's news at thepowercast.com. And don't forget to check out our Newly updated discussion forums at ThePowerCast.com, where you can download every single episode of the show free of charge. No kidding.
4: Welcome back to The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti.
1: We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine?
0: Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher. And here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special... Five issue introductory offer for first time subscribers nineteen ninety five for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast.
1: So Bill, how do they place the order?
0: People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com They can also place orders over the phone at one 888 MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295.
1: Bill, give us that contact information again.
0: It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1 888 UFO MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card.
5: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney.
1: You never know what's going to happen next. So, A.J. Gavard, how did you get started in the crazy UFO business?
6: Well, this is a very long story. I guess I was born with this thing in my mind. Because I'm 44 years old now, and all the memories that I have as as they go as back as possible and I always uh, remember that I'm being involved all the time with UFOs since the age of 11 to 12. This is actually when I started reading about UFOs and when I was mm-hmm. 13 to 14 I started collecting clippings with reports of UFO sightings all over Brazil and the other countries of South America. By the age of 14 I already had like uh, 10,000 clippings and by the age of 15 I had 20,000. This is when I started talking to people, getting information of what they have seen by themselves, and comparing to what other people have seen and that have been reported in the papers, and then, you know, it goes on and on, I started speaking in colleges about UFOs, Uh, well, actually, I was very precocious also in organic chemistry, gave me a very solid scientific background to start in ufology as well, so by the age of 16, I was already, 15 to 16, already lecturing about this. It never stopped. I've been this for all my life. Like I told you, I'm them, 44 years old now. The magazine that they launched, which is the oldest in student circulation in the world now, it's 23 years old. And I've been devoted to, to this since the beginning. I'm the only person in Brazil who lives from this and live entirely to this. I'm entirely dedicated to ufology, which is not bad, but it's also a uh, tough life. I really love it. I, I travel, I do lectures all over the world, I've been to over 45 countries, I've been over hundred times outside the country, outside Brazil, so I really enjoy this. I've been in contact with people We who really haven't mentioned about UFOs in many many countries and and we network pretty much and so comes to my attention almost everything that happens in any corner of this planet. It's it's really interesting. To do UFO research is really something that you enjoy. It's something that changes your life and once you you go deep in this you realize that how wonderful it is that we are not alone in the universe. It's fantastic.
1: You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. A.J. Gavard joins us, and I have to tell you, I'm probably mangling his name rather fiercely, so we'll just call him A.J. Now, I gather from what you're telling me here that UFOs is also your day job, right?
6: That's it.
0: I, actually,
6: it's a day job. It's a night job. It's like a 14 to 16 hours a day job. Right? I do this all the time, entirely.
4: A.J., you were talking about when you were growing up that you were clipping Reports of UFO sightings from newspapers now the, the the amount that you say you were clipping from is this just Brazilian UFO sightings or global UFO sightings when you were growing up
6: most Brazilian most Brazilian, At Brazilian. that time by the years of 70s and in the early well early uh, 80s also we had m- many more cases being reported I don't know for some reason I guess that the press kind of lost some of its interest on the UFO subject because nowadays like uh, we have like 20 perhaps 30 percent of the cases being reported over the, the, the TVs or, or the newspapers. Generally they are just local newspapers that are reporting cases in which UFOs are involved. I don't know I think that the press in a, in a certain way kind of gave up waiting for some answers about the UFO phenomenon. Then they just started to get slow on publishing information about UFO sightings. I guess that now, let's see, last year, the year 2005, we didn't have this, uh, not, not, not even 20% of what we had 20 years a in a specific in any given in any given year, as far as uh, reports of UFO sightings by the newspapers are concerned
4: now what about the uh, it, it, running the country's biggest UFO magazine? I would imagine that if people were citing UFOs, they would be recalling the reports into you,
6: correct? Yep. Yes, lots of people come to us to report UFOs because the magazine is the only one in the country and it's been on for over 20 years. Actually, we're going to be 23 years in next March, 2007. So, whoever is interested in UFOs in this country, in the neighboring countries in South America, they come to us all the time. When the season uh, anything in the sky. I want to take uh, those accidental digital photos? There are so many. We get like, oh god, uh, I would say like a hundred per week of photos. Perhaps two or three uh, small footage, small footage per week and daily. It's, it comes to a thousand, sometimes twelve hundred, thirteen hundred emails of people who want to discuss the subject. And many, many of them, many, many of these people are telling us stories that go beyond the basics. Yes, we also get the basics. People telling us that they have seen those small lights in the sky, that this is all over. But people trust us in such a way because we've been on the road for so long that they report us much a wilder case of, of, uh, closing counters of abductions or what they believe are abductions. And when we do in the magazine the coverage of specific types of cases, they come to us to tell that they have been subjected to those cases, they have, they have had similar experiences. So it goes on and on and we have a very, very thick file, very comprehensive file Of what's going on in Brazil, but unfortunately, as you would suppose, with Jean and and Dave, the the cases are so many, and we we don't have as many people as we would like to, as we as we need to deal with this amount of cases. So most of them, a great amount of them, unfortunately, go. Uh, without investigation, go without. We can do anything about them. Unfortunately, we just pick the the very best ones, the most significant ones, the ones in, in which we have multiple witnesses with UFOs at close range, or when they land, or when they they do some. Uh, electromagnetic disturbance of any kind, uh, disturbance physical, physiological, disturbance of any kind, and, you know, of course, the close encounters with aliens, abductions. This is our main thing here.
4: Uh, along those lines, I guess in Brazil you have the equivalent of what happened in the 40s in Roswell, New Mexico, uh, with the Virginia case. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that and what you people discovered about it.
6: Oh yes, Virginia is certainly our best case. It happened on January 20, 1996. It was a Saturday. It was midsummer in Brazil. And Virginia is a small town in the state of Minas Gerais which is a rural state. So it's it's not a big town, and people in this place have already been subject to the UFO phenomenon for for decades. Go around Virginia, you find several people telling you stories about UFOs much, much prior, much, much before the Virginia case. But Virginia is the landmark. Virginia is, is the milestone case that we have here the Paracast with Gene
5: Steinberg and David Biedny. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. If you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at That's news at And don't forget to check our website, theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show or join with our discussion forums. This week, we're talking to A.J. Gavard. He's a longtime UFO investigator from Brazil. A.J. is also the editor of uh, Brazilian UFO Magazine. He does this full-time, folks. And we're talking about a case here that I guess we call Brazil's answer to Roswell.
6: Virginia can very well be compared to Roswell, but I believe, Gene, that Virginia is m- much bigger than Roswell in very senses, because you see, Roswell happened in 1947 and only started being investigated 25 years after it happened, mm-hmm. and by accident. So most of the witnesses have lost most of their memories. Some witness have already died by the time it started being investigated, and the others died in the decades before, after that. So we have several uh, gaps in Rosville investigation. It was, well, pretty well investigated, but because of the, the time elapsed, since it happened when it started being investigated, this is a big problem. Now, in Virginia we didn't have that. It happened on Saturday, January 20, 1996, and it started being investigated less than 24 hours after it happened. And in less than a week, we had about 60 to 70 UFO researchers from all over the country going to Virginia, some of them who are we're already in Virginia, investigating the cases and talking to the witnesses and then the wit- the witnesses, the first-hand witnesses, the people who saw the creatures, people who saw the creatures being taken, being being uh, captured by the fire department personnel and the army personnel. There are so many. You go in the town, you can still find people because we're talking about three to four hundred witnesses, of which we have spoken. With a hundred. Now, Ronson will not, not even compared to that. We hmm. have a hundred live first-hand witnesses of the Virginia case. These are people who saw creatures at large after the crash of a a ufo and we we also have the witnesses of the crash we have also military witnesses who have detected by raiders that crash we have military people and civilian people who uh, saw the craft being retrieved and we have people civilians and military who took part in the operations of capture removal of the creatures, taking them to hospital, then removing from one hospital and taking to another hospital, and removing from that second hospital and taking to a university where the the two creatures were were handled to a forensic doctor very famous in Brazil. And we have witnesses between the team of this forensic doctor. We have reports given to us in confidentiality uh, anonymously. They don't want to appear because they are still on duty. By the military who made the captures and took the creatures with their bare hands and took them to hospitals and took them to that university. So we have all parts of the Virginia case pretty well covered, pretty well covered. And we have documents and a lot of evidence that absolutely unquestionable, absolutely undeniable that at least two creatures, were captured on that Saturday, January 20, 1996, in Virginia, by the by a, a group of, of firemen of the, the the fire department, along with a group of military from the Brazilian Army. You may ask, well, why the army would be involved in this? It's because Virginia is not near to any Air Force facility, and you expected it. Air Force would handle such cases, but there were none, no facility at all, in a radius like 300 kilometers. So, and also, uh, a an Army installation is located just 20 miles away from Virginia. This is why it took part in the operations. This is why. And this is a very, very big case,
1: Gene. Yes, this does sound like quite a case. Can you tell us more about this area? You said it was located in a rural section of the country. Maybe you can give us some more information about the population and all that sort of thing.
4: Well, AJ mentioned that it was very
2: rural, actually. Yeah, sure.
6: Uh, a town of 120,000 people. Okay. They have like two or three universities. They have a few buildings in the house. Well, actually they don't like to, that we say that Virgin is a small or at maximum, a medium-sized town. They don't like it. The Virginians, they don't really like it. But it, but Virginia is, is actually a very small town. Yet, a small town, and, and 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 you know what? It's in a in a state, right in the middle of Brazil. It's in a state called Minas Gerais, which is very famous for the last like 40 or 50 years for the so many cases of UFOs and abductions of humans in that state. Now we have the Villas Boas case, which one, which is one of the the most significant Venice, yeah. that we have, happen right. nearby. We have by Pendy. We have cases in the Mohudas velhas We have cases all over uh, the area where Virginia is located.
4: AJ, what is the description of these creatures? What did you find that you said there were many witnesses to these creatures? Were their stories and their descriptions of these creatures consistent? And um, yes. They were.
6: Yes, they were consistent And uh, all, everybody who saw the creatures Have given us the same basic report The creature had the same two legs Two arms, a body, and a head That almost all other alien creatures That have been seen outside UFOs Or inside UFOs in this planet
1: This is then but the traditional gray alien range. then? Excuse me?
6: Well, it looked like a gray in form, in shape But it, it didn't have any gray skin It had... a uh, A brown, a dark brown skin. Right. And Hmm. big head, the big eyes, low black. Instead of black, they were dark red eyes, and they look like, they looked like they were very fragile, like they were suffering in our atmosphere. As a matter of fact, it's kind of disgusting of telling you that, but but facts must be said. As a matter of fact, some of the people who came close to the creatures, especially after midday on that Saturday, when the sun was very high, was the was very hot reported that the creatures have this very bad small of rotten meat
5: oh boy
1: for 58 years fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal like angels and miracles psychic phenomena ghosts ufos and much much more To receive your complimentary Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the paracast with Gene Steinberg and David
6: Bianni. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Check out our website, thepowercast.com, for our discussion forums and also to download past episodes of the show. And don't forget to rate us. Tell us what you think about the show and put that rating on Apple iTunes and podcast alley, whatever your favorite is. You can contact us, news at theparacast.com. Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. We're talking to A.J. Gaverd, a Brazilian UFO researcher who got started at the age of 11 or 12, kind of like the rest of us did. And we're talking about an absolutely incredible crash that took place a decade ago in the center of Brazil. A.J., I want to ask you here, is there an official government position about what happened there?
6: Yes, and the official position that the government has and the military has is that nothing ever happened the UFO researchers are crazy, the witnesses are lying or delusional, absolutely nothing happened. But you know, their the explanation is so stupid, it's so silly, because we have so many witnesses, all all the city took part in in one, one way or another uh, in this whole thing. Like, the first creature was seen in the neighborhood of Virginia by, by many people. It was seen from 7.30 a.m. to 10.30 a.m for three solid hours the creatures were seen in the bushes in a place called Jardinia which is the neighboring areas of Virginia. Some people threw stones at the creatures some people were left there for these three hours thinking they were looking at some sort of strange monkeys or strange animals or whatever and some of them even uh, observed as the military went to into the bush to capture them. It happened and glowed daylight now
4: well nobody got happened, a picture AJ no one got a
6: picture of any of this no amazingly David no oh. picture whatsoever now we have reports that military where uh, went to the hospitals where the second creature was taken to because the first one was immediately removed from Virginia and taken to the nearest nearest city where the dominant location uh, is is situated and from from there is taken to another uh, state in South for that university. So we have reported that the military who went to the hospital where the second creature was taken to, they had cameras. But so far, we haven't been able to get any picture and especially no videos about it all. Uh, we know of the existence of one, one Uh, Long duration video of over one hour that was shot of several steps of the procedure that that the doctors did with the creature in the first hospital and partially in the second hospital where it was taken to. And we know that several militaries saw this state, this video. Because we have spoken with people who worked in their houses and reported part of the contents of such videos, but it was all kept under wraps. It was all kept under very heavy secrecy. So unfortunately, we don't have we don't have any video, any image of that, except for the drawings made by the witnesses. Unfortunately, what, what about the no, crash vehicle itself? very important about this case. Yeah. That is, after the first creature was captured and removed from town at 10.30 a.m., all the police forces were on alert, on a full alert. And we had civilian police, we had military police, we had federal police, plus the military police plus the fire department personnel and a few other forces all in the town of Virginia looking for the other creatures that remained at large. Now, eventually, on that Saturday afternoon, about 3.30 in that afternoon, three girls That used to work as maids in some people's houses nearby. They used to join themselves to meet themselves in a particular place where they would, from there, walk to their homes through an empty field for a few blocks. And they did precisely the same thing they have done in the, in the several, uh, many several times uh, before. And while they are doing that, in the middle of the way, they saw a second preacher. We believe that's the second creature. That creature was the, the one that was captured later on at night. By 8.30, all the police forces that I described were looking for something strange. And there was a group of military police guys that were at leave there at home. They're not working at that particular weekend, but they were called upon to go on duty, to present themselves for duty, for work, and they were given very brief information, very fastly, information that they were supposed to look for a strange, strange creatures. So this is why they, they started looking for strange creatures. They didn't give them any further information, especially any information of what the dangers of that creature might impose to someone who gets close to them. You know what happened? By 8.30 that night, there are these two guys in a, in a military, in a military car. Actually, it was a civilian car that belonged to a military installation, the military police. These two guys were working in this car, doing what they were told to, going to the neighboring areas of Virginia to look for something strange. Out of sudden, something strange, a, a creature walking on two feet, just Go across the the street and they have to break almost run over it. Now the guy who was sitting in the passenger seat, which in Brazil it's in the right portion of the car, just like United States, unlike UK, this guy was Marco Elisheresi, 23 years old, and as I told you, he was on leave, he was at home. He was spending his time with his his family. He used to live with his parents and his wife, who was six months pregnant. And he left the car and goes into the roofs and captures the second creature with his bare hands. Can you imagine something like that? You know what he did after that? What? He brings the creature back to the car opens the door, sits in the seat, and puts the creature on his lap. And then <laughs> they go look for help. <laughs> that guy died 17 days after that Oh, boy. Captain yes, his immune system was totally destroyed because he was attacked in this 17 days period of time by three different bacteria. Two of them were killed, were killed treated, but the third one, which is a bacteria that we are exposed to it on a regular daily basis, it killed the guy.
0: Oh, boy. There's nothing that could be done. You've entered
2: another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
1: Or in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, If you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. Check our website at thepowercast.com for our discussion forums and to download past episodes of the show. We're talking to A.J. Gaverd He is a long-time UFO researcher from Brazil. And we're talking about I guess a situation here where somebody captures an alien or apparent alien and then suffers from a fatal illness. And we were talking to Nick Redfern on the show just a few weeks ago about the similar subject, about his investigation into people who have suffered from fatal diseases as a result of coming too close to spacecraft or to aliens. So maybe the watchword here is caution. UFO occupants and craft are dangerous to your health sure sounds that way right
6: yes it, it can be very dangerous you know to be in contact at close range with aliens with ufos but we, we how would supposed to know you perhaps in, in some particular cases to be close to aliens would not cause any harm to us in that case in brazil unfortunately we didn't have any knowledge at all about those aliens, that specific type of alien, because not only that, but we haven't even heard of a similar type of alien seen anywhere else in the world. So we didn't have any doubt on that. And even if we had, we couldn't help because the military started their operations without asking to anybody what kind of danger would they expect. Now, because this, this young fellow died of this generalized infection with septemia, we would suppose that perhaps if you consider that, looking at, by that angle, the military would be right in keeping that under wraps. At a certain point, because perhaps at that particular day, with a few aliens at large, uh, several people that could be in touch with them, could have been hurt, could have been harmed, could have been killed. So well. we always consider that as something that puzzles us. Plus, Gene, there's more. A.J.,
4: before a you continue, no, A.J., I have to ask you a question before you continue. This fellow, okay. this fellow, this gentleman, did he have any kind of a history of health problems leading up to this? And were you able to acquire the medical records stating what exactly he died of.
6: He was absolutely perfect. He was a healthy guy who just have passed an exam mm-hmm. to go in a, in a higher level in the military he was absolutely normal had no physical condition of any kind right. now you ask it something very important which is when this man died have his corporation his military corporation come to the family to give explanations no right. Have the military come to the family to give a death certificate? No, not even that. He was buried without a death certificate. The family had to wait an entire year. And then only in the first anniversary of the Virginia case, on January 20, 1997, the UFO researchers and the press, we have lots of cooperation from the press, we went again to Virginia. We made so much noise. We accused the military, of secrecy in this case, of doing things that they're supposed to do, like hiding the cause of death of the young fellow. And all the thing turned out to help the family to get, at last, the death certificate. And when they got it, just a few days after the first university, the cause of death is not clear. And and the the document is poorly written. You don't find anything that's useful there to say, oh, right, this is why he died. But we have medical records, all right. We have medical records uh, of a blood exam that the guy done in, in two occasions prior to his death, of course. And they show very strange abnormalities. And after that, a few years after that, we have managed to convince a doctor who treated the guy to come forward and give us an information about it. And this gentleman, who was a very well-known and very experienced doctor, a physician in Virginia, he, he shared with us how amazed he was to see the health condition, health status of that young fellow to de- degenerate so quickly and so irreversibly. He was taken into into all sorts of treatment but the diseases that would be healed like if you got an infection like he did and 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 in one infection was in the arm actually an armpit in in the right in, in the The left armpit If you got that If I got that If anybody Normal Get that You take a few pills And you're healed But he didn't Hmm. He was He could be healed With large amounts Very high doses Of medications In his Two first Infections But then he got a Fourth infection A third infection Actually And this third infection Killed the guy Which is an infection That any one of us Could have And could have Any time of the year and you can, can heal yourself with very silly pills and not in that case because the man has his immune system totally destroyed. And this is the conclusion of the, of the physician who, who took care of him in two occasions. First when he went by the first time to the hospital to look for help because then he was taken to treatment in his own uh, corporation which has medical facilities and then when he was very bad he was taken again to the civilian hospital where he has, we were, uh, went under treatment by the same doctor. So we have this pretty well covered. It's it's a very sad thing, very sad thing. And we have rumors that we haven't been able to check because uh, the military worked very rapidly and they have much more resources, much more power than the UFO researchers. But even then, we were left with pieces of information here and there that at least two more, two more policemen, died of the same cause. Oh, boy. We, unfortunately, we, we don't have, not like in the Marco Elixirese case, the first guy where we have hundred percent information about it. We have all his his participation in the operation of capture covered. But unlike in this case the other two we don't have. So we we only speak this informally like I'm doing now. It's not something that you find documented unfortunately. But the rest of the Virginia cannot which is a because of a thousand Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. This is a very big case. Now, we start talking about this as a comparison with the Roswell case. Now, you know what I mean when I say that the Virginia case is much, much bigger than Roswell. It is. We have reports of the captures, the removals, the treatment of the creatures. Now, see, this second creature it was taken by the military, the two guys, on the, on the lap of one of the guys, the Michael Licherez, was taken to the hospital, the biggest hospital in downtown Virginia, which is in a very open place. When they informed by radio that they were going to take the creatures there, all of the police forces, including the army, all came at the same time to the same hospital. All the population could see that. Mm -hmm. The creature was taken inside the hospital. Parts of it had to be isolated so the creature could stay there and part of the of the hospital. Nurses took contact with it. Doctors had contact with the creatures. Military were all over. Policemen were all over. Some civilian walking around they could see something of what was going on. In a few hours, like two, three hours after the creature was taken to this hospital, it was then analyzed, it was then concluded by the military that it could not be left there Any longer because it posed a threat to to keeping this thing a secret, so they removed the creature to a second hospital. And it also took a a complex operation because it happened like uh, 10:30 to 11 p.m. on a Saturday night in in a small town in Brazil. Very hot summer. Now, what people do in a night, in a Saturday night, in summer in Brazil? They go to the streets, they go talk to their friends, they go walk around, and, and the hospital is right in the middle of that lots of people. Right
1: in the of middle people. of the action, it sounds right. like.
0: This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown? Things that go bump in the night? UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at mrufo at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. This is The Paracast, with your
5: hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next.
1: let me stop here and tell our listeners, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietni. If you want to get in touch with us, send your messages to news at thepowercast.com. Visit our website, thepowercast.com, for our discussion forums or to download past episodes of the show. We're talking to A.J. Gavard from Brazil, a UFO investigator, full-time UFO investigator. And we're talking about what is clearly
4: one of the most incredible UFO cases ever. David? What about uh, the ship itself? AJ, if we have a a bunch of aliens walking around town, what happened to their ship? Was there any report of recovered metal or recovered artifacts? Did Did nobody grab a little piece?
6: No, nobody grabbed a little piece. Because, you know, the whole story, the beginning of the story is like this. We have solid information that NORAD, North American defense system, this object coming into uh, Brazilian airspace by one of the United States satellites. Then it was informed to our authorities that this object was aiming to some point of central Brazil. So our systems, the the radar system and defense control system in Brazil started tracking this object as well. We have discovered. Now this object was coming down and never got up. So the military concluded it crashed. And the military arrived scene, the scene, place where it crashed, where it was detected that it crashed much faster than any one of the UFO researchers. Actually, in a matter of hours, in a matter of hours, the object was already retrieved. And we have uh, a couple of witnesses that saw the retrieval of it. One of them was harmed and threatened by the military. Not to speak about that to anyone. What he saw, he was driving in this road in the early morning of Saturday, January 20. The crash happened like 4.30 to 5 a.m., very early in the morning. And he was driving about 6.30 to 7 a.m., just a couple of hours or less than that, when he saw a strange Movement of trucks and troops into a certain position like 10 kilometers outside Virginia. And he was a, a pilot of ultralight and he was curious to see maybe he thought to himself maybe they are doing some experiments, military experiments and he had nothing to do so let's go see what they are looking for or what they are doing. And then he go, he went after the trucks for a few miles. He and he entered this empty field where there's a big farm and small hills. And he saw a couple of trucks and he saw a couple of dozens of, of military working on something and grabbing stuff from the ground. He stopped his car, which was a small truck, and for a few minutes he could observe that a large portion of something was already on the top of one of the trucks. And the military were conducting a, a very, uh, meticulously search in the grass for what he thought could be a small debris of that bigger portion that was on top of the truck. And they were getting all this material and putting on the other truck. And when he was spotted by one of the military, this military spoke to another military and this other military gave an order for a third one to go to the man and tell him to go away from there. This is what he did. So in a matter of few minutes, he was away from there and he goes back to the road and he stops at the gas station and drinks a coffee. Then after 15 minutes, he's drinking that coffee and eating some sandwich or something his breakfast. A couple of military that he recognized were, between the other ones, on that empty field, came to the gas station, went to the place where he was set close to the bar, uh, having his breakfast, mm-hmm. and ordered him not to speak about that to anyone, and that he should leave the area immediately, and that's what he did. Now, this man decided to speak to us. Just several months after we've been doing all this noise about the Virginia case. And this was a strategy, actually. in in, in such a way, we had lots of cooperation from the press, especially the largest TV network in Brazil, which is the fourth or the fifth in the world, which is Global TV Networks, a very big one, which helps the the UFO researchers uh, in several ways. We have a very good partnership with them. And with them, with that, TV network, and several other papers, magazines, and whatever. We did so much noise as a part of our strategy of letting everybody know what was going on. Everybody know, Everybody having information of the new findings that we have on an everyday basis. So by doing that, other witnesses decided to come to us to give us the information of what they have seen. And one of them is this gentleman. Another one is a lady who actually died last year that she used to be a wife of a former mayor of the city of Virginia. And just a couple of weeks after January 20, 1996, after the capture of the creatures, and in the, in the, the, the other days after the, 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 the capture, there were lots of sightings of UFOs and strange creatures all over town. But this couple... This this lady, Terezinha Van Cleft, and, and her husband, who used to be the mayor of town, they were in a party in a zoo in, in the middle of the city of Virginia. There is a zoo, and in this zoo there is a, a place for a party. There's a covered place, people do birthday parties, ball right, right. mm-hmm. parties, all mm-hmm. sorts of parties, and the one going on a, a wedding, and at certain point she decides to go out, and this is in the middle of the zoo with the trees all over, animals and everything, and she decides to go out for a smoke, then she sees that she was being watched by something, when she gets close to it, to us, another creature, Precisely at the same type that was described by so many people during the Virginia sighting on January 20, 1996. This young fellow, fragile body, with big head, three protuberances in the head, resembling uh, like horns, but they were not horns at all because they started at the at the front of the head and go to the back of the head, one right in the middle and two on the on the side of the heads, and this big big. Dark red eyes.
4: Oh boy! This, this almost this almost sounds like descriptions of the chupacabra.
6: Yes, well, but uh, unlike the chupacabras, this creature didn't have wings or big teeth or big nails or uh, any kind of uh, hair no body mm-hmm. hair no mm-hmm. no sort of body hair so it's a different thing than than the chupacabra
4: right and but it, the, the red eyes uh, it's an interesting comparison we're in the paracast with Gene
5: Steinberg and David Biedney you never know what's going to happen next
1: You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to contact us, send your messages, to news at thepowercast.com, news the at thepowercast.com. Visit our website, thepowercast.com, where you can participate in our discussion forums or download past episodes of the show. A.J. Gaver joins us. He is a full-time UFO researcher. has been at it for about over 30 years now. And we're talking about some incredible UFO related encounters. And we have time really for one more segment on the show but aj you're going to have to come back again in the future so we can explore Definitely. this
4: further so david you had some questions well okay aj this case was uh, 10 years ago it looks like there were yeah. a lot of witnesses unfortunately it looks like there were no photographs at all which i find very frustrating what has happened with the case since then has there been anybody in the military who's been willing to come forward and talk about this at all
2: Well,
6: every now and then, we, we grab a new piece of evidence here and there. It's been going on since it happened. Now, just a couple of years ago, actually more, three years ago, we had a Roger Lear, Dr. Roger Lear from Thousand Oaks, California, coming Mm -hmm. down to Brazil. He's a, he's a very good friend of all Brazilian UFO researchers. He's coming, he has come here many, many times. And one of these, Occasion that he was here, that he decides to go to Virginia. And while he was in Virginia, he was put in contact with a doctor, and they they both have the same specialty. The doctor is an orthopedic, and Roger is a podiatric Podiatrist, yeah, yeah, yeah. They deal with same thing: hands and feet and and bones and this and that. And because they they got together, this doctor, this Brazilian doctor that we have been talking to him for so long to convince him to come forward, to come public, to speak about his experiences that he had already confessed in a very private manner to a few of the UFO researchers. But, he was reluctant to come forward he was very reluctant to give us any more description details of what he experienced on the night that the second creature was taken to the hospital but when roger was there roger because they were uh, doctors and had the same speciality roger somehow convinced him to come forward and that man on that day gave us a very interesting report he was on the emergency room of that hospital where the second creature, capture creature was taken to and he was dealing with his patients over there when the creature was already in the other part of the hospital and one military decided to go after him and say, hey doctor, can you take a look at something and see what can you do to help it and the man went there to the other room and sees that creature laying down and tries to help that creature laying down. Anyway, But he was unable because, and this is something that he declared to us, he was unable because he didn't know what to do. That thing didn't seem human. That thing didn't have any vital signs like heart beating or something. So Mm -hmm. the doctor was getting more and more frustrated as he, he tried to help but didn't know what to do. So one particular time, and this is the description that this doctor, who's a very serious one, gives us. One particular time after like half an hour had passed and he was with that creature, he reports that the environment of that room become yellowish, strangely yellowish. And he says that his sight of the creature comes so clear that he he had his vision enhanced, his thoughts enhanced, he could almost capture what the creature was thinking, and out of a sudden he had this information of what he could do with that creature laying down there hurt if it wasn't too late. And it was too late. The creature was almost dying. He had that information and he decided to give to us just three years ago. This kind of thing, like a new witness is coming forward, it goes all the time. Now, all the time we have an email from someone who gives us a new piece of information. See, I was there. I saw this or I saw that or my cousin used to work at the military. He decided to talk last week. He decided to tell us what happened on that day in Virginia, and this and that, all this kind of information. So we always get information and adding, adding this information to the big scenery. It's amazing.
4: Hmm. So outside of this, and that, that testimony is fascinating, but really, otherwise, you have had no success trying to determine... Where the bodies of these things ended up. But one of the things that occurred to me while you were telling the story is I wondered if at any time the American military was seen in Virginia cooperating with Brazilian military forces. All the time,
6: since the early hours of that thing. Going on in Virginia, uh-huh. military from the U.S. and civilian from the U.S. that I suppose were sent by the U.S. consulate in São Paulo, which is only 300 kilometers, like 200 miles away, were sent to Virginia. Some of these people register into the hotels and spend a couple of days, or actually a couple of nights. We have reports of American doctors, we have reports of American military going around with the Brazilian military and around with the Brazilian doctors. Now, while the creature was kept in the first hospital for just a couple of hours, when it was concluded that it couldn't be kept there for longer because it was too public, and they decided to take to another hospital, which is a private one, much more calm, which is far away from downtown, and the situation was very battery in a much better way could be controlled what happened they did that they transferred the creature and it was kept there for an entire day for actually 26 hours when eventually the creature died and during that day most of the doctors uh, who have any speciality, who have special skills in Virginia, were called to go into assist to see if they could help in any way to reverse the situation to keep the creature alive. And among them military from the U.S. and doctors from the U.S.
1: You know, we have about a million questions we'd like to ask you, but unfortunately we're just about out of time. So maybe Actually, we could prepare to sum this up. Before I do, though, can you tell our listeners, is there any way to get in touch with you? Do you have a website people can check out?
6: Yes, unfortunately my website is all in Portuguese. Okay. Just a few portions of it is in English. People can hit uh, ufo.com.br.
1: Okay, ufo.com.br. Go ahead.
6: Yes, very easy. ufo.com plus .br for Brazil. Okay. And people can write me anytime. I, I, I get emails from all over the world and I, I make a point and answer in answering them uh, all the time that I get And my email is h-a-f-g-e-v-a-e-r-d, as in my surname, .com. Okay. Or either editor At ufo.com.br, people can send me emails, I can uh, give further details of the virginities, including images, if someone is interested.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to be definitely interested in exploring this, and by the way, Dr. Roger Lear is a friend of the show, he's been on our show, and I'm hoping that perhaps in the next few weeks we'll have him back on the show to discuss his investigation into the case because this is something that the fact that it only happened 10 years ago, it makes it a lot easier for us to at least try to investigate, try to find out more about it and also take advantage of your wisdom and experience. Let me ask a question which probably we didn't have a chance to pursue, a real fast question here. Have you personally ever seen a UFO?
6: Just in in, in occasions that were very fast things. Uh, I have three sightings in my entire life. Actually, one happened in the United States back in 1992. I was at the Extraterrestrial highway next to Rachel, and I was driving back to Vegas. There was a UFO conference going on in Vegas, and the car where I was with a couple of fellows, we were chased like uh, for a few minutes for a strange, very strange balls of light close to the, the mailbox. And that was something. But here in Brazil, I had two sightings close to the area where I live, which is a big swamp, just like the Everglades, it's called Pantanal. Mm. Which, By the way, the name is Big Swamp, actually. We had been there several times researching cases. There are lots of families that live all over. They have sightings to report. And in two occasions, I have seen just small balls of light in the sky. Nothing that could make me, you know, that, that I could use for my own researches, not, not even compared, these cases are not even compared to some of the cases that I have investigated. So if I would use my own experiences <laughs> with UFOs... Wouldn't go too far. No, I wouldn't go too far. We
4: definitely have to have you back. I've got a lot more questions I didn't have answered. Uh,
1: Actually, so you,
6: ha- you have well, to come well, back I would like to get back to the show, any tiny yes. ones? We
1: are definitely going to have you back. AJ, thanks for joining us on the PowerCast.
6: Peace It was my pleasure, Gene and David. uh, I wish you guys all the best, and if we can help in any way, just let us know.
0: The Paracast, with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated.
2: Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.